Hi, everyone. This summer, Zelda and I, that's Denise, will be posting minisodes. These minisodes are going to cover the usual murderers, but the difference is there was less for me to find on their family trees. So we hope you enjoy them because they are still very fascinating. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Well, hi there, Zelda. Hey, how you doing, Denise? Good. How are you today? I'm good, although I wish the sun would come out. I'm ready for some sunshine. Yeah, it's just warm. Yeah. It's been in the high 80s. I mean, we literally went from like the 60s to the 80s. And I'm like, <gasps> And so muggy. So very muggy. Yeah, so humid. So I know you're busy packing and everything, but are you reading or listening to anything or watching anything right now? Well, so The Handmaid's Tale is back on. Mm -hmm. And so I've been following that. I have to admit, I'm not like jumping up and down with the direction that it's taking, but I'm willing to see that it through. Yeah, I'm just, I'm willing to see it through, see where it goes. But, you know, I, I hope it goes somewhere. So, hey, how about you? <laughs> Are you, anything fun? Um, I've been, well, I've been watching different things, but I've been reading a book called The Fall of Lilith. Interesting. What's it about? It takes, it's about heaven. Um, oh, it's a, a clearly a fictional account because we do yeah. But basically, um, I can't remember the name of the author, but she says that heaven's divided into three layers, and Florasin is where all the angels live. And so you're following the angels as they're growing up and they're teenagers. And then Lilith, in particular, she's kind of a troublemaker. Hmm. Because she gets one of her gifts that she gets vision. So she sees what's going to happen on earth in the future. And she sees that there are carnal desires that one can have. And it <laughs> Is really, this like a, a bodice ripper? Or... <laughs> no, okay. no. In fact, they don't really get into details okay. on that stuff. But because of some of the things she sees, and part of it is her personality, she starts persuading other angels to join her to overthrow the other angels. Oh, well, that's a bad plan. And and take over for God. Yeah. And yeah. talking Lucifer into doing this. And that's all part one is she's trying to lead this rebellion and start this rebellion. Okay, so I hate to say this. So basically, we're blaming a woman for Lucifer falling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, as long as we can always blame a woman, we're, we're good. I know. Good. And, and I have mixed feelings on this one because, I mean, I, I, I've seen the all these reviews giving it five stars and I'm powering through it, uh -huh. but the writing bothers me because it's kind of written like you're reading a religious text. Uh -huh. So that that's the kind of style of the writing, which doesn't draw me in as a story right. very well. And then the whole, let's put this on Lilith. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow. Lucifer does what he does, right? but she's the first one to, yeah. So, and it's written by a woman. Well, I look forward to hearing your assessment when it is complete. Yeah, if I complete it. Because I just finished part one. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to keep going. Because 
I'm one of those. If I'm really not into the book, oh, yeah. walk away. I end up, I, yeah. I, I used to always try to power through, but not anymore. Oh, no, that's time you'll never get back. Just walk away. Exactly. Walk away. So, I'm, but I keep going, well, everybody says the second half of the book is better. So, I'm at least at the second half, and I'll see if it improves. I think that's a good plan. Good luck. So, we'll see. So, today, we're talking about, oh, my gosh. Now, she, this woman is actually one of the more famous serial killers. Mm-hmm. For yes. her time. Yes, she is. And you want to tell everybody who we're talking about? It's Belle Gunness. Do you have a little chime that goes, you know, after we mm, say... Maybe looking? I should look at... Maybe I should find a chime. I think that'd be super fun. <laughs> so, yeah. Belle Gunness. What a woman. What yeah. a woman. So, and... I, I'm not even sure where to begin, so I'm just going to just begin. Um, Belle Gunness was named Brunhild Paulstadter Storset at birth, but she changed her first name to Belle when she emigrated to the United States from Norway in 1881. She then lived with her sister in Chicago until her first marriage. Now, she was quite handy with a knife, this girl, and one mm-hmm. of her many jobs was breaking down animals for butchering. Notably, she was almost as tall as me, about six feet tall oh, and quite strong. I missed that somewhere. I mean, I, got, I, I heard that she was strong, but I didn't realize she was that tall. Yes. I'm, I'm, that is the one thing I think we have in common. Um, <laughs> although I'm quite handy with a knife. But Belle Guinness married mm-hmm. Mad Sorensen. You know, really? Probably. You know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. Can't help myself. Nothing. I've been, so I've been watching Food Network. And they yeah. show skills things like chopping onions and things like that. And I'm like, wow, that is actually a nifty way to do it. Like, I just, no one taught me how to chop onions. I just figured, you you know, basically whack at it a while and then you have chopped onions. But you can get, like, really pretty diced onions. So I'm, I my knife skills have actually been improving. And I'm That's great. Proud. I just use the food chopper because that way I don't cry every time. That's I'm actually really onions. smart. I should, I have a food chopper. Um, oh. I should use that. But... Okay, yeah. Oh, do we? Oh, do we don't want to talk about the murderer? That's right. That's what we're. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Belle Gunness married Mad Sorensen. That's M A D S. Mads Sorensen. I I I hope it's short for something or that's not a nickname. I don't know. But they got married in 1884. What were you gonna say? Let me. Oh. I, let me look really quick. Okay. I think it is Mads though. I mean, they were both Norwegian. Well, so. his name was Mads Ditlev. Anton Andreas Michelson Sorensen. Say that ten times fast. Yeah. So Sorensen and Gunnis. We're and now obviously she took his last name at some point. Right. Um, but since we're referring to her as Bell Gunnis, that is what that's what we're working with here. They owned a candy store. It burned to the ground. Wasn't doing real well. Oddly mm-hmm. enough, there was insurance. So, you know, at the same time their home burned down and the couple did receive insurance payouts. That's a handy. So this is just a little bit of, huh, seems curious. Let's keep moving forward. Well, two babies in their home died from inflammation of the large intestine, which can result from poisoning. Mm. Oddly enough, Bell had insured both of the children and collected a large insurance check after each death. Now, the neighbors, you know, they were a little suspicious. They gossiped about the babies, but because Belle never appeared to be pregnant. Oh, yeah. 
So along the way, Sorensen had purchased two life insurance policies on himself. On July 30th, 1890, both policies were active at the same time as one would expire that day and the other one began. Complete coincidence, Sorensen died of a cerebral hemorrhage that exact same day. How curious. I know, isn't it? Poor Belle, right? Like yeah. all this death. So um, her explanation was he had come home with a headache and she provided him with quinine powder for the pain. She later checked on him and he was dead. So Gunnis collected money both from the expiring life insurance policy and the one that went into effect that day for a total of $5,000, which is wow. like serious money. Yeah. Serious money. With the insurance money, she moved to LaPorte, Indiana and bought a pig farm. By coincidence, LaPorte, Indiana has an excellent furniture store there. Okay. <laughs> Being from Indiana, props for the... Yeah, I, I know, but I'm trying to figure out the coincidence between the pig farm and a furniture store, but we'll go with it. Oh, no, just LaPorte, Indiana. Oh. <laughs> That's the only coincidence. Okay. Um, so now, Belle, of course, decided, hey, this marriage thing seems to be working out just great, so I'm going to do it again. So she married Peter Gunnis on April 1st, 1902. And I went and double-checked that because I'm like, that that's April Fool's Day, right? Like, yeah. It just seems a little too on the nose. You know? Oh, no. It, it was correct. But it's true. Now, Peter had an infant daughter at the time they got married. I'm not exactly sure what happened to his first wife, how he became, you know, the parent of an infant daughter. Um, but a week later, his infant daughter died of an unknown cause in Belle's care. I can tell you a little bit. I Okay. His first wife's name was Jenny Sophia Simpson. She was also from Norway, and they married in Minneapolis. Ah. Uh -huh. And she died on September 1st, 1901. And oh, okay. her daughter was born on September 1st, 1901. Oh, so she died in childbirth. Yes. Oh. Well, that would make sense why he mm -hmm. was looking for a new mom for his baby. Yep. Well, sadly, eight months later, Peter himself died due to a skull injury. Mm. Bell explained that Peter reached for something on a high shelf and a meat grinder fell on him, smashing his skull. Well, that happens. The district, yeah, as, as it was. One time a sewing machine actually almost fell on my head and I had to like jump back really fast and my machine smashed to the ground and I had to buy a new one. Um, but yeah, that totally would have killed me. Um, However, the, you know, these things happen, but the district coroner still convened a coroner's jury because he's like, yeah, this just seems like murder. This just yeah. seems like murder. Um, nothing came of the case. Bell collected $3,000 insurance money. Now, this is really interesting. So local people refused to believe that her husband could be so clumsy because he had run a hog farm on the property. He was known to be an experienced butcher. Um, and of course the coroner was just like, yeah, he was totally murdered. Right. Or at least he thought so. But of course right. there's the coroner's jury. Now, Jenny Olson was a child in the care of a bell at the mm -hmm. same time. Right. And cause people, for somehow she was able to obtain children, little questionable exactly how this was happening. But this child was overheard confessing to a classmate my mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. Mm. So she was brought before the, that coroner's jury, but she denied that she made the remark, which frankly, had I seen my mother kill my father, 
I too would be denying I'd said anything like that because right? you know you're next, right? So Gunnis, meanwhile, was working on this the whole thing about I'm so innocent and my husband just died. And she happened to be pregnant. So she didn't mention it at the time. Um, but in May 1903, a baby boy, Philip, joined the mm-hmm. family. In late 1906, Belle told neighbors that her foster daughter, Jenny Olson, had gone away to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles. Some neighbors were told it was a finishing school for young ladies. Okay, we're going to keep going. Between 1903 and 1906, Belle continued to run her farm. In 1907, Gunnis employed a single farmhand, Ray Lamfer, to help with chores, quote unquote. But of course, not one to particularly enjoy single life, Belle Gunnis began placing marriage ads in Chicago newspapers in 1905. As one does. As one does. And I have an ad. Would you like to hear the ad? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with a view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Comely? Comely. Pretty. Comely. I know, but is she really comely? And, you know, it's a personal ad. Everyone exaggerates, right? Yeah, true. So one of her ads was answered by a Wisconsin farmhand, Henry Gerholt. After traveling to the port, Gerholt wrote his family saying he liked the farm, was in good health, and requesting they send him seed potatoes. When they failed to hear from him after that, the family con- contacted Gunnis. She told them Gerholt had gone off with horse traders to Chicago. She kept his trunk and fur overcoat. And, of course, during this time, Belle Gunnis is adopting children, and this is why CPS exists now. <laughs> Among many other reasons, yeah. Yeah. So John Moe of Minnesota also answered Gunnis's ad, in, but in 1906. After they had corresponded for several months, Moe traveled to the port and withdrew a large amount of cash. Although no one ever saw Moe again, a carpenter who did occasional work for Gunnis observed that Moe's trunk remained in her house, along with more than a dozen others. Now, her handyman, Ray Lamfer, and we'll talk a little bit more about him in a bit, he was getting jealous and weird, so she fired him and then spread rumors that he was threatening to torture house and kill her and her kids, and for some reason, then paid off her mortgage and had a will drawn up. <laughs> in April 1908, the Gunnis Farmhouse in LaPorte, Indiana, burned to the ground. Yeah. In the ruins, authorities found the bodies of a headless adult woman and her three children. Further investigation at the time unearthed the partial remains of at least 11 additional people on the Gunnis property. So, after the fire that led to the bodies, Laporte police authorities were contacted by Ethel Hedgeline, who had found the correspondence between his brother, Andrew, and Gunnis. The letters included petitions for him to relocate to Laporte to bring money and to keep the move a secret. Hmm. Yeah. That's a red flag. Um, a visit by Astley to the Gunnis farm with a former hired hand who'd actually been hired after Ray Lamfer had been fired, led to attention being paid to the soft depressions in what had been made into a pen for hogs. And they found gunny sacks that contained bodies and body parts and Hedgelin recognized those to be of his brother. Mm-hmm. So they found dozens of these slumped depressions. They found multiple burlap sacks 
graves, butchered bodies, all butchered in the same manner, body decapitated, arms removed at the shoulders, legs severed at the knees. And they kept finding the body parts in a lake. The police kind of stopped counting. With all of these discoveries, the perceptions of Belle Gunness, as reported in newspaper descriptions, as a praiseworthy woman who ran the successful farm and had tragedy and look at all the children she's adopting, dying in the fire that consumed her house in a desperate attempt to save her children, they reassess that. Like, oh, yeah. Something seems to be happening here. And suddenly, they invited inquiries from families with men that had gone missing because most of the remains could not be identified. Mm-hmm. When everybody was exhumed, they found the remains of over 40 victims, men and children. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about Ray Lanford earlier. So... Ray Lamfer was her hired hand and an on-and-off lover, probably more off than on, but you know how guys are. They'll stick mm-hmm. around for it. Um, <laughs> in November 1908, Lamfer was convicted of arson and connected with the fire. In, connection, in November 1908, Lamfer was convicted of arson in connection with the fire. Lamfer later confessed that Gunnis had placed advertisements seeking male companionship only to lure them to murder and rob them who responded and eventually visited her on the farm. So Lamphere stated that Gunnis asked him to burn down the farmhouse with her children inside. Now, not only was her children inside, that handyman who showed them like, hey, there's these weird depressions, had actually been in the house when the house was on fire. And yeah. he woke up, walks to the door, flame of, you know, flames, so he jumped from a second floor window in order wow. to save himself from the fire. You do what you need to do to get yourself oh, saved. absolutely. Lamphere, now here's where things are like even stranger. Lamphere also asserted that the body thought to be Gunnis's was in fact a murder victim, mm-hmm. chosen and planted to mislead investigators. She was faking her own death, in other mm-hmm. words. Now, the brother of one of the victims had warned Gunnis that he might arrive at the farm shortly to investigate his brother's disappearance. And this was the impending, this impending visit was the motivation for Gunnis to destroy her house, fake her own death, and run away. And when Lamphere was arrested, he was wearing John Moe's overcoat and Henry Gerhold's watch. So, you know, Lamphere was in on this the whole time oh, yeah. and profited from it. So, you know, what? He's trying to say he's innocently following the these rules he has to follow. Yeah. He's just like, yeah. Anyway, years later, Lamphere confessed killing everyone on his own volition and included that the headless woman found was not just another murder victim of Belle Guinness's, but Belle Guinness herself. I keep wanting to call her Belle Guinness. I do too. I, I, I don't know why, but I, do, yeah. I get that. So the end of this is that nobody really knows who to believe and really it's still unresolved because they haven't even been able to use DNA because the DNA is so degraded at this point. Right. Despite all of this, Belle Gunnis was pronounced dead. Now, the doctor who performed the postmortem testified the headless body was five inches shorter and about 50 pounds lighter than Gunnis. <laughs> no explanation was provided for what happened to the body's head that had just mysteriously gone missing. Mm-hmm. Sadly, the bodies of Gunnis's three children were found in the home's wreckage, in their beds. They, they uh, mm-hmm. slept through the fire. But the headless adult female corpse found with them was never positively identified. And of course, Gunnis's true fate is unknown. The port residents were divided between believing that she was killed by Lamphere and that she'd faked her own death. Interestingly, in 1931, 
A woman known as Esther Carlson was arrested in Los Angeles for poisoning August Lindstrom for money. Two people who had known Gunnis claimed to recognize her from photographs, but that identification was never proved, and Carlson died while, await while awaiting trial. So meanwhile, Ray Lamper was tried for murder, mm -hmm. but he was only found guilty of arson. So, yep, so he avoided the death penalty and spent a few years in prison, but then that was that. Well, and because he'd been acquitted of the murders, even when he confessed that he had done it, it didn't matter. So he could just say whatever he wanted. I can see, though, with the murders, him using a defense of, I didn't do it. It was all Bell. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you had that reasonable doubt creep up. But still, right. it just seems wrong. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I just helped her bury the bodies or whatever. Yeah. It's like, hmm. So anyway, of course, because human beings, you know, sometimes are garbage. After Gunnis's crimes came to life, the Gunnis farm became a tourist attraction. Oh. So spectators came from across the country to see the mass graves and concessions and souvenirs were sold. And now, of course, the Port County Historical Museum, Historical Society Museum, has a permanent Bell Gunnis exhibit. Also... To add to all of this, Gunnis has also been the subject of at least two American musical ballads. What? Somebody apparently, at least two people, wrote songs about our Belle. So, yeah. She's not doing us tall girls any favors. So, yeah. she, I'm revoking her tall girl membership. Unless that was a song from Sweeney Todd. I just don't... <laughs> <laughs> that as being a good thing now what was yeah. the name of the gal in los angeles again hester uh esther uh e-s-t-h-e-r uh -huh. carlson c-a-r-l-s-o-n i'm gonna see if i can't find a picture of her so we can post it on the website oh that'd be cool but i'll have to look for a picture here making a note so i don't forget wow yeah so that was kind of crazy yeah um, and I have to admit, I was a little surprised she got away with it for so long. Just because there were so many people that right? she got away with it. You know, it's just like, wow. Yeah, well, because part of it is, I think, this thought that women don't do those things. Mm -hmm. We know that's not true. Women right. are less likely to do those things, mm -hmm. but they do that. So you never know. Well, mm -hmm. let's talk about Belle and where she came from. She came from the town of Selbu in Sertrondelag, Norway. And I'd like to apologize to any Norwegian people, anybody who's from the Nordic North. <laughs> if I screw up pronunciations, feel free to let me know. I'm just doing what I can. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the town sits along the Nea River. I, I just came across this. And while you gather your thoughts... Her nicknames were Lady Bluebeard, the Laporte Black Widow, the Mistress of Murder Farm, and Hell's Bell. Ooh, I like Hell's Bell. There's, I just there's the title of the episode right there. I just picture that Disney princess, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Selbu is almost 500 kilometers straight north of Oslo, and about 100 kilometers or 60 miles to the west of Sweden. So it's not close to a major city, this is what I'm trying to say. It's a fairly rural area with an average temperature of 58 degrees Fahrenheit in July. 
Oh my. Yeah, the record high was 91.8 degrees in July, not reached until last summer. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's it's typically not that warm. It's very mild up there. Since the sea is within 45 miles, so there's uh, there's a bay not that far in Trondheim, mm -hmm. the winters are very mild. It's no worse than Illinois in winter. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and I failed to mention there is a lake close by, Lake Selbu, oh. and it's surrounded by forests as well. So it's it really lovely. It is. It's really beautiful. And I even saw a picture with moose in the area. Aww. And I'm like, oh, it's so gorgeous. And I even looked because I was looking, I need to see pictures in winter since it's uh -huh. winter longer there than it is here. But yeah, at least it's a mild winter. We're talking like 27 average. Did you see like Elsa or? <laughs> no, none of that. Not this time. <laughs> oh, man. So why would someone leave this beautiful <laughs> area and come to the United States? This is always my question. Why did the person leave? Six month winters? That could be. You know, <laughs> you don't know. But she went to Chicago. It's not like Chicago has anything but mm -hmm. six month winters. <laughs> so we'll get to the reasons why in a little bit. Okay. Belle was the youngest child born to her parents with only five of their children making it past childhood. Oh. The oldest surviving child was Belle's only brother, Peter. Then came Brunhild, not Brunhild. I, I saw somebody reference well, she was named the same as her sister, but it's not the case. I found the records. It was Brunild. Mm -hmm. um, or Nellie is what she went by. Then there was Merritt, Olina, and Carrie. Belle was 16 years younger than her brother and 13 years younger than her oldest sister, Nellie. Mm -hmm. so there's quite a gap in age. The parents of this brood were Paul Peterson Storth Dirtle and Bareth Olstadter Longley. I think I got that right. Now, her father, Paul, was born in Selbu in 1808. He would marry Bareth in 1842. He was 34. She was 26. So they're older. And I think that was fairly typical for that area. Mm -hmm. They would wait until they got their, themselves established before they would take a wife. I approve. Mm -hmm. I'm good with it. Paul was the son of Peter Paulson Dirtle and Bierta Carl's daughter. I could only find the name of Bareth's father, Ole Nielsen Longley, hmm. but that's as far back as I got with this family. It was around 1872 that Nellie decided to head for the golden shores of America, which brings me to why would, why did Nellie leave? Because I can get Belle wanting to follow a sister, but why, what prompted Nellie? Mm -hmm. Well, in the mid 1800s in Norway, they faced some agricultural disasters including a famine in Sweden from 1867 to 1869. And mm -hmm. remember, they're very close to Sweden. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it affected them to a certain degree. During the same period, despite the conditions in Sweden, or maybe because of it, the population of Norway grew, mm -hmm. making tillable land more scarce. So many people left for the United States in hopes of finding some good farmland in places like the Dakotas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, basically the Midwest was their, their go-to place. At Selbu, 
her father, Paul, farmed and worked as a stonemason. And it turns out the family was struggling a bit as Paul applied to the poor fund for his family around 1868. Additionally, all the family members found themselves working to help support the family. Belle, at age nine, worked as a shepherd. And then once she was old enough, she got a job as a maid. Wow. So when you combine the financial hardship faced by the family, as well as the mass of people leaving, Nellie likely decided to leave as a way to help out. And it's one less mouth to feed. Maybe she can send some money home. And I'm sure that the prospects of finding a husband with everybody leaving mm-hmm. had dropped. Yeah. And she would have a better chance in the United States. But do I know for sure? No, this is just theory. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was unable to find Nellie on a ship manifest, so I do not know if she traveled with an extended family member or by herself, or even if she had somebody waiting for her in America, or if she was just going solo and on the adventure on her own. What I do know is that Nellie made her way to Chicago. Within five years, she would meet another Norwegian immigrant, John Anton Larson, just three years her junior, and they married around 1877. Nellie's baby sister, Belle, would follow nine years after Nellie's own travels and four years after she had wed John. No other siblings or family members came to America. The rest of them remain in Norway. Belle and Nellie's mother died in 1885 with their father following five years later in 1890. So there isn't much more to learn about Belle since she killed her entire family. Although I do have a few notes to share at the end, so we'll get there. Let's talk about her seemingly stable sister, Nellie, in more depth. And I'm not saying seemingly stable in a sarcastic way. Just from everything I could tell, she was stable, but having not met her, I don't know. And we're going to also talk about Belle's nieces and nephews. Nellie and her husband, John, lived most of their lives together in Chicago. It's likely they met in church or among friends. John worked hard for his growing family. They would have their first child, son, Halfton Ferdinand, in March 1878. He went by the name of Harry for some reason. Um, He was baptized three months later at Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Chicago. 16 months later, son John Rudolph was born in July 1879. Don and Nellie would add three daughters to their family, Olga Marie in 1882, Hilda, Emilia, and Orta Pauline. In 1900, I found the family living at 419 West Chicago Avenue with all the children still at home. John was working as a day laborer, son Harry was a machinist, and son John was an artist. Wow. I know. I don't know what art he was doing, but I thought that was pretty cool. By 1910, only two children remained at home son John, now working as a tailor, and daughter Borda. At this time, Nellie's husband worked at a cheese-making factory. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, and it was a job he continued for many years. And the family had moved to the community of North Lake in Chicago, a small community at the time. Still, but it was, and I mean, it was still even considered part of the city of Chicago. Not today, though. Now it's in Cook County. It's not considered part of the city. It's a suburb. In fact, North Lake didn't even get its name or its town designation until 1949. So it wasn't even a town back then, probably just a neighborhood. Hmm. They'd move again back into the city by 1920, living in the Logan Square neighborhood, which had a sizable Norwegian population at the time. However, 
they moved once again, this time leaving Chicago completely heading to Los Angeles, California, where they lived in Montebello, and they retired there. And they had a home they owned valued at $6,000 in the 1930 census. Wow. John Wood died first in 1938 at age 89. Nellie followed three years later at the age of 95. Wow. They lived a long life. We'll talk about Nellie's children and grandchildren now and what I found. These are all the nephews and nieces of Belle. Oh, wow. So just keep that in mind. We'll start with Harry or whatever. We'll start with Harry. In 1899, at the age of 21, Harry enlisted in the United States Army with the 19th Infantry Company B at the end of the Spanish-American War. In 1902, he was discharged at the Presidio in San Francisco due to a disability. Hmm. I believe the disability was disclosed on this World War I draft registration card where it has, or do you have any physical disabilities or anything that would prevent you mm-hmm. from, you know, enlisting? And he noted that he was missing both thumbs. Oh, my God. Yeah. Two years later, he married French immigrant Barbara Oswald, and they would have three children and they raised them all in Los Angeles. Harry would work for many years at a box company until his death at age 56. I can only imagine how hard that would be, though, to do, working at a factory without thumbs. Oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. And he died before his parents, of parent, peritonitis. Oh. Like an inflammation of the bowel. and mm-hmm. Yeah. Brother John didn't marry until 1911 at age 32 to 22-year-old Alita Jacobson. They had two daughters, Lucille Olive and Florence Myrtle. Sadly, John Rudolph never got to see his girls grow up, as he died a premature death at the age of 40 in 1920. I have no clue why, Hmm. which frustrates me because I looked in the paper and nothing. I'm like, was it poison? (laughs) You never know. But um, Illinois doesn't have their death certificates where you can see them Hmm. on on anything I I could request one, but... You know, oh, yeah. so now this is where things start to get really good. We're going to go right. to Nellie's daughter, Olga Marie Larson. She was the oldest and she left Chicago. In 1910, I found her living in Waukesha, Wisconsin. But where she lived and the circumstances brought more questions than answers. Olga had no job and only two of the people she lived with had jobs. And she lived with 379 others. Mm-hmm. I'm getting some hints that all might not be normal. Yeah, each person was listed as a boarder. So, of course, I'm like going, wait, what's going on? Typically, when I see something like this, I see the name of a hospital, maybe a prison. But usually in those circumstances, it'll say inmate or patient, not boarder, or even military. But, like, when you see it's a military union, there's usually a job listed. Mm-hmm. So, again, questions. This was not the case. The head of the household was one Edwin L. Harvey and his wife Gertrude. He was listed as the vice president in the place of the place they were living at, which was the Metropolitan Church Association. And his wife, Gertrude, was a secretary. Interesting. So what was the MCA, the Metropolitan Church Association? Was it a cult? Was it a church? We'll figure that out together, I guess. Wow. Do you know the answer? I, I have an opinion. Because it sounds like a cult to me. <laughs> That's my, my general opinion. It was more of a cult, but there are... People who are still members to this day wow, will probably see it more as a religion. But you'll see why when we, we discuss this a little bit more okay. in depth. According to Edwin L. Harvey, one of the founders in his book, Sermons on Bible Characters, published in 1909, the group was formed 
this is a quote, with the view to presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ without money, without price to as many people as possible. Now, Edwin was one founder and he was a hotelier. He owned the Mayflower Hotel Company in Chicago. It's not the same as the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, DC. And the other being Duke M. Farson, a wealthy Chicago broker. And on Sundays, he was also a preacher. Now, the MCA did not believe in holding private property. And expected, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> yeah, and expected that holy members would sell all they owned and live as a community. Interestingly enough, Duke and Edwin owned property throughout this time. Curious. Now, yes. were the, the um, church members also encouraged to give large tithes to the church and donate I, their property? I did not see anything about doing that. Okay. Just curious. Right. Now, Edwin and Duke formed the group as a response to their dissatisfaction with the Methodist Church and its formality at the time. The leaders started meeting in Chicago around 1894. Then in 1906, they moved the headquarters to Waukesha, Wisconsin. Those who lived at the Waukesha location, like Olga, were viewed as being in religious training, learning about the Bible and religion so they could leave and teach the gospel in order to win souls. The group had two nicknames, the first being the Burning Bush. It was a reference to a weekly periodical they published by that name. Okay. And two, a name that really fit this radical holiness evangelical group was the Holy Jumpers. Why? I want to know why. Because they would jump and dance when the Holy Spirit moved them. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. This was one of the religious revival movements that helped spur the emergence of Pentecostalism. Wow. Mm -hmm. The MCA did hold some revivals throughout the country, but not all communities were thrilled with this. I found several articles detailing the revivals being peppered with rotten eggs, apples, rocks, and more thrown at the Holy Jumpers. Oh my gosh. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1912, while the headquarters remained in Wisconsin, plans were made for a colony near Bullard, Texas. Charles E. Palmer purchased over 1,500 acres. Duke Farson exchanged with Palmer some land in Idaho, Chicago, and a hotel and brickyard in Las Vegas, Hmm. New Mexico, I should say, in Las Vegas, New Mexico. In 1913, 375 members arrived on a charter train in Bullard, Texas to this new location for them. To live with the commune, you had to give up all your worldly possessions. Alcohol and tobacco were not allowed. The time was spent praying and working while contact with outsiders was kept to a minimum. Mm -hmm. Pretty typical of this type of thing. The plan was to farm the land and generate revenue. However, by 1919, the county sheriff had to seize the land and buildings due to a debt of over $12,000. Oh my gosh. Or $195,000 today. Wow. As I researched, I found a few articles like this one with regards to the MCA from the La Crosse Tribune on August 3rd, 1907. Olga Lundell, the 17-year-old Sauk City, Iowa girl who it was claimed by her mother was being held by the members of the Metropolitan Church Association, has been given into the care of her mother by court commissioner Hemlock, before whom the return of the writ of habeas corpus was had. Commissioner ordered that they give up the girl at once to her mother. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
or like this in September 1907. It was an article about a 20-year-old woman, Elise Reed, who claimed that the MCA held her in a room for over a week and that she was finally able to escape. Oh my gosh. So while with the holy jumpers, so this is why I kind of lean towards more cult mm -hmm. than religion per se, but they were actually counted on the 1926 U.S. Census of Churches and memberships. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm. While with the Holy Jumpers, Olga met Charles Peter Peterson. They would leave the Fountain House. The Fountain House is where they were located in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and Mary, but remain in Waukesha, where they had three children. Olga died at age 43 in 1925. Oh. Her second child, Edwin, was found living at the MCA in 1930, mm. but he didn't stay very long. By 1940, Edwin, or Pete as he was known, probably for the last name Peterson, had finished college and lived in Barton, Maryland. Hmm. By October of that year, he was working for the Library of Congress <gasps> and the Copyright Office. Oh, yay! I love the Library of Congress. Yeah, I know. There's little things that when I'm writing down, I'm like, oh, she's going to love this. I love that so much. <laughs> I have a Library of Congress library card, you know. Yes, I know. Mm -hmm. And I actually donate money to them every year because this this world and this country just needs more books. So Yes, we do. In 1941, Edwin, you and Mary Fern Helan, a secretary for U.S. Senator from New York, Royal Copeland. Hmm. And as far as I know, they had a happy life. Now, Olga's sister, so another daughter of Nellie, okay. was Hilda Emilia Larson. And she married Edwin Howard in 1904. He was 31, she was 20. Isn't it so nice to see adults being married this time around? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> teenagers. seriously. The couple had four children. After they were grown and flown, the couple moved to Montebello, California, near Hilda's mother, Nellie. Then in 1940, Edwin died, but Hilda would live another 24 years, reaching her 80th birthday. Wow. Yeah, three of her children didn't follow, though. They stayed in Chicago. Hmm. or at least the nearby suburbs. Only one, George, settled in California. I will not talk about all of her kids. Huh. <laughs> this is a mini-sode after all, but I will discuss her daughter, Vivian Clara. Vivian was around 21 when she married Edgar Frank Bauer in 1928, with Edgar just a couple months older. Hmm. They would have two sons, John and Edgar Jr. In 1939, husband Edgar was involved in an incident with a burglar, or not, and this is from the Chicago Tribune, February 4th, 1946. Truck driver fatally shot during quarrel. Tony Tamillo, a truck driver, died last night in St. Anne's Hospital of a shotgun wound in the abdomen inflicted early yesterday by Edgar Bauer, 39, during a quarrel in the hallway of the North Avenue address. Bauer told Austin police he thought Tamillo was a burglar. Tamillo said he went to the North Avenue address to see Mrs. Ann Terzo, a relative by marriage whose husband, Lawrence, was killed while in the army in Germany. Police held Bauer on an open charge. And as far as I can tell, he faced no charges for the incident. Wow. I mean, there could have been, and it just got, wasn't covered, but it was seen as accidental that yeah. he really did think it was a burglar and wow. he had a clean record. So, mm -hmm. but this would not be the only violent incident for this family. Oh. One thing I love to do is look at death certificates, which it may sound odd, but being a genealogist, I think we get it. Like, we like we love going into cemeteries, too. We're mm -hmm. kind of weird that way. We're made a little different. Mm -hmm. But they give a lot of information. 
But the part I like is cause of death. I like to know why somebody passed away. Mm -hmm. Usually I run into the typical causes, heart attack, cancer, cerebral hemorrhage, pneumonia. But occasionally I find what I did on Vivian's grandson, Bell's second great-grandnephew, Michael Bauer. Going in, I was automatically curious because I saw he was born in 1960, but died in 1983. What could cause a young man to die? But not only that, there was no definitive time of death. Hmm. That's a bit unusual. They didn't have the date. It said on or about. Wow. When I got to the cause, I saw multiple stab wounds. Oh, no. So now I know I have a story. Okay. There's something that happened. So figuring there must be a newspaper article, given that there were multiple stab wounds, mm -hmm. I did a search. And this is what I found. And this is from the Chicago Tribune on November 29th, 1983. Chicagoans' body, one of four, found on farm, and it's written by John O'Brien. One of four young men whose bodies were found buried in Newton County, Indiana, was identified Monday as 22-year-old Chicagoan who disappeared from his home March 7th. Dr. David Dennis, the Newton County coroner, said dental records identified the victim as Michael C. Bauer, a pizza deliverer who was last seen by his parents taking out trash from the family home in the Portage Park neighborhood. Lieutenant Joseph Mahoney of the Chicago Police Department's Missing Persons Bureau said Bauer's disappearance had been actively investigated. He said police submitted Bauer's dental records to Dennis after the skeletal remains of the four men were found in a barnyard of an unused farm near Lake Village, Indiana, 50 miles south of Chicago on October 18th. Mm. Bauer had played hockey as a youth and had undergone extensive dental work, which Dennis said enabled him to conclusively determine Bauer's identity. Authorities in Indiana and Illinois believe that as many as 20 young men found murdered in the last two years in the two states were killed by the same killer or killers. Dennis said he has received dental records of dozens of missing youths from the Midwest as authorities continue their attempts to identify the three bodies found buried near Bowers. A suspect in the case, Larry W. Eiler, 30, a Chicago house painter, faces trial December 19th the stabbing death of Ralph Calise, 28, an uptown electrical worker whose body was found near Lake Forest, August 31st. Wow. And it turns out that that Larry Eiler is the one who killed Michael Bauer. Larry Eiler, the serial killer. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Michael Bauer, the nephew of a serial killer, was the victim of a serial killer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It is tragic and it's horrifying and just awful. Oh my gosh. Because I, especially since I doubt that his family even knew their history, not like they had any control over that right. anyway, but I'm sure they didn't talk about it, you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. But, and we're definitely going to be covering, covering because of this, um, Eiler in the a future episode. Probably in oh the fall. my gosh. I'm just, I, I really think that they should look into, like, generational curses at this point and just see, like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, you know, an exorcism or two might help. I don't know. Yeah, I could see that. Larry Eiler was from Indiana, and it's mm -hmm. believed he's responsible for the murder of 21 young men and teenage boys between 1982 and 1984. Mm -hmm. Now, I do have a few notes left. Jenny Olson, we talked about this. Yes. In the 1900 census, she was listed as Mads and Belle's adopted daughter. Mm -hmm. And being curious, I found her birth parents. Oh, fun. They were Ole Anton Olsen and Sophie Ingvaldsen. 
Sophie died when Ginny was just seven months old, hmm. and she was the youngest of four. I believe I believe Ole Anton was just unable to handle all the children by himself, hmm. so he found friends and neighbors to adopt his youngest children, and I believe they might have gone to the same church. Oh my gosh, that's so tragic. And the biggest surprise I have, I have a copy of Belle's will. No way. Yes. A will written and signed the day before the fire, April 27th, 1908. What a crazy coincidence. I'm going to read part of it. Okay. Because, I mean, it's like a typical will. I want my bills paid, you know, I'm a sound mind and memory. The sound mind is a little questionable. Item two, I hereby give, devise, and bequeath to my three children, Myrtle Aldefine Sorensen, Lucy Bergliat Sorensen and Philip Alexander Gunnis, all my property, both real and personal, wheresoever situate, share and share alike. Provided that, however, in case of the death of any of said children without issue before my death, the survivor or survivors shall inherit the whole of said property. And provided also that in case of the death of all three of said children without issue, that the whole of my property shall go to the Norwegian Children's Home in Chicago, Illinois. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine the Norwegian Children's Home getting that letter? Right? Oh my gosh. Hey, I, guess what? I would be conflicted. Here's a murder farm. Children were killed here. It's yours now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm sure they'd appreciate the money, but yeah. Oh my gosh. And, and then this, I just realized I never stopped to check out. I'll, I'll check here in a second. Item three was, is my wish that I be buried in the Forest Home Cemetery at Oak Park, Illinois. Wow. And there's no record of where she's, she's not buried anywhere, <laughs> honestly. Wow. And that is the tree of Brunhild, Paul's daughter, Sorset, otherwise known as Belle Gunnis. I'm just, just, wow. I, you know, okay, it's a crazy story. Anytime you get a woman who's not killing not only her husband, because I can kind of see that sometimes, um, but her kids, and then taking right. in other people's kids to do this too, and and purely for greed, because mm -hmm. she's just, you know, constantly, I mean, at, one po at what point do the insurance companies say, we're not going to insure anybody related to you anymore? I mean, right? that's so crazy. And I, you know, I don't know. It's just, yeah insane i mean and it seems like her sister had it together which is nice but even her family couldn't escape well and in all in honesty way. couldn't her i mean okay granted it's like how could they not know this but of course the serial killers are good at hiding these things and those were very different times for communication mm -hmm. but i wonder if bell had any indications before then that she was capable of mm. this or was it her first husband because remember you know, she killed the kids. They killed the kids, not the kids. Um, yeah, it was the kids because it was mm -hmm. the baby that died and then she killed her husband. Uh, the two babies right. that died. So that was, might've been her husband's idea. And then she's like, Hey, this is pretty nifty. You know? Well, that's true. Cause wait, one, two of the kids died, actually three before 1900. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could see that. I'm just, cause I, I mean, what do we know about him, really? You know, Mad Sorensen. Yeah, I know his father was Andreas Michael Sorensen. His mother was Caroline Sophie Beck, mm -hmm. I think. And he was from Drammen, Buskerund, Norway. Mm -hmm. And he immigrated in 1881. Mm -hmm. But that's 
all I know. And they were only married for what? Like um, they were married sixteen years. I oh. got married in eighteen eighty four. So that's longer than I thought. Yeah. Because um, but they didn't have their first child mm -hmm. until eighteen ninety six. Wow. So it makes like what was going on there? Yeah, I'm like. There's something that's not quite right, which of course makes me, I mean, one should not blame the victim, of course. But, right, because that was 12 years after they got married. So he was 41 when they had their first child. She was 36. Wow. So what happened? And were those were those babies she gave birth to or were those babies that were adopted? As far as I can tell, they were babies she gave birth to. Okay. So... Um, yeah, I... I don't know, but it does make me wonder, did she lose a lot of children? Yeah, like miscarriages and such. Right. And did that drive her a little crazy? Mm -hmm. And yeah, did he have an influence on her? Or was this all from her own thing? Like she was blaming him for the losses. Mm -hmm. And Yeah. But you would think he would be suspicious if his children kept dying, you would think. Oh my gosh. Okay, so wait, I'm looking and, okay, if they were married in 1884 and then he died... On in eighteen ninety, that was six years. No, well, no, he died in nineteen hundred. Sorensen did. Mm-hmm. I'll double check, but I have his death date as July thirtieth, nineteen hundred. Oh, I have it as July thirtieth, eighteen ninety. So let me double check. But I think because, I have this right. Okay. Yeah, because he's on that nineteen hundred census. Oh yeah, I'm totally. Wait, wait, maybe let me double check something. Yeah, I think he is because. The, that was taken in June 1900. I would have to research this really quick. Give me a second. Yep. He was alive in 1900. He died in 1900. Yeah. And I even have the Cook County Death Index that confirms mm -hmm. that. And that he was buried on August 2nd, 1900. And the reason she wanted to be buried at Forest Home Cemetery mm -hmm. is that is where Mads was buried. Yeah. And I'm betting that he was an abusive asshole. There had to be something going on there. Yeah, there was something going on. Because, I mean, she didn't, just sound like that, but she didn't kill anybody for years. Yeah, well, and I'm just like, this is an interesting article that I found on Murderpedia, which, you know, not super, super reliable, but it's good leads, right? And there's a May 7th, 1908 article in the New York Times states that two children belong to Gunnis and her husband, Mad Sorensen, were interred in her plot in Forest Home Cemetery. Yeah. Yeah, I just can't help but think that there had to have been losses. There's an um, investigation report the couple had four children, Caroline Axel Murder, Mur Myrtle and Lucy. Caroline and Axel died in infancy, allegedly of acute colitis, and then the others lived longer, which would be yeah, Myrtle Caroline. and Lucy. Okay. Caroline, uh, yeah, I don't have the exact date of birth for her, mm -hmm. and you said Axel. Axel. I don't think I have the exact date of birth for him now. Okay. But Lucy was born on Christmas Day, 1898. Mm -hmm. She was also baptized that day, mm -hmm. and she died on April 28th mm -hmm. with the others. Yeah. And let's see. That is so... Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and especially if they had previously killed two of their children. Why did they let the others live? What was it about those two? Mm -hmm. You know, was there something we don't know? Like, yeah. Did she have maybe postpartum psychosis? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my question. There's, there's a 16 year gap of information 
that mm-hmm. I suspect would explain a lot of this. I think you're right. That because it just seems very strange to me that she had such a normal life mm-hmm. for so long with like not a whole lot of questions, not a whole lot of concerns, no observations of odd behavior, and then boom, crazy shit. Yeah, because if she was after the money. Mm-hmm. She would have been after it from early on. Right. She would have waited 16 years. So there had to be something going yeah. on. Yeah. Like, so she had Axel in 1898, and then she had Lucy at the end of 1898. Mm-hmm. So could there have been a postpartum thing going on with her? And by 1900, she's mm-hmm. lost it completely and lost it on her husband. Mm-hmm. And was there abuse? I mean, could that factor into maybe that one of the babies was hit? Mm-hmm. But you would think that they would have seen bruises and not thought it was, yeah. There's so many questions. I have questions. Yeah, there's lots of them. There are many questions. But, so, great episode. This was yeah. awesome. Oh, my gosh, for mini-sodes, these, are pack, these pack a punch. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of great ones. And okay. they are all filled with so much information. This is so. going to be fantastic. And they're not, they'll be extra short. So there you go. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> I hope you have a great rest of your week and that everyone listening has is having a fantastic summer. Yeah. And leave us a review, please. We could use that. And, you know, five stars is great. Yeah. Tell <laughs> us what you think if you like us. If, if you don't, yeah. eh. <laughs> And if you have somebody you'd like us to cover, let us know. Because I'm working on a list of who we're going to cover for the next year. Mm-hmm. Well, Thanks again. This was amazing. Have a great life, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at murderousroots.com. Dot com. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S dot com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.